This is R.J. Rushdoony, December the 31st, 1994. Easy chair number 330. We've been at this for some years now, and we are enjoying it more and more each time, and we hope that you are also. Mark Rushdoony, Colonel Donor, John Upton, and myself will now discuss Christian manhood, a very important subject and one of increasing concern to more and more men. We have reached a crisis where, in our culture, feminism is taking its toll on the Christian community, and at the same time, the childish, macho image that many men in and out of the church are affecting is also taking a very deadly toll on the life of the faith. The essence of Christian manhood is responsibility under God. At all points, a man must be governed by the knowledge that he is under God and is always responsible to him. One of the things that troubles me, and uh, I encounter this even in some members of the clergy in conversations and in telephone calls, that they see the headship of the man in radical isolation from his obligation to be radically under the word of God, faithful to God, and manifesting Christian grace, love, charity, and a concern. Manhood is essentially a mental and a religious matter. This morning, John and I were discussing the matter at breakfast, and his questions led me to point out that some of the most remarkable men in history have been robbed of their manhood in a physical sense. One of the greatest men in Chinese history was the Admiral Cheng Ho. He was a eunuch, but he did not allow that to keep him from being a man. He extended the Chinese power throughout Southeast Asia and actually took Ceylon or Sri Lanka as it's known. The Chinese Empire reached its height under Cheng Ho the Magnificent. He was a eunuch, but he was a better man than any of the uh, unneutered or uh, men around him. Or still another one who has been rated as one of the greatest generals of all history, Narses. Narses was an Armenian from an important family, and we don't know how, uh, when a, a young man, he was, by some enemies, castrated. 
but he was. He never talked about it, nor any of his family. His family was a distinguished one. Five of his brothers were generals in the Byzantine Empire under Justinian the Great. And he became a top official in the administration and a very great one. He would be remembered in history just for his accomplishment in the administration of Justinian. But when he was an old man in his 60s, the western front of the empire was collapsing and uh, Germanic uh, peoples had conquered Italy. And all other defenses having failed and other commanders having failed, Justinian sent Narcissus, who had never had anything to do with the military in all his life and was an old man. In no time he turned the war around. The Germanic people snickered when uh, they heard of his coming and they thought that uh, Justinian was indeed getting uh, to be senile to send a eunuch out against their powerful troops. Well, he defeated one group after another and finally besieged a sizable number of them in one fortress city and finally when they were near starvation he offered them terms he said continue to hold out and you're dead to the last man I keep my word surrender and I will give you free passage out of Italy on your promise not to come back and to wage war against the empire well they knew that uh Narcissus was a man of his word, and they turned over to him all their armament, everything, but he let them go out as they were, gave them food, and no other Germanic army could persuade them to go back on their word. They left the country. In time, Narcissus mopped up on every army in Italy. He was a eunuch, a small man, never having commanded an army until he was an old man. And yet this is what he did. And military historians rate him as one of the two or three greatest generals in all of history. Manhood is a question of faith, a question of action in terms of your belief that God has given you something to do so that there have been eunuchs in history who, unlike others who've been beaten men, have been triumphant men. Now, I begin with that because I feel it is so important to realize the spiritual and the psychological aspect of manhood. Well, God created man, we are told in Genesis, to exercise dominion, to subdue the earth. 
the Garden of Eden was to be a pilot project wherein man was to learn dominion, the scientific task of naming or classifying the animals, of tilling the earth and pruning the trees and learning how to tend for the garden and advance its productivity. Man sinned, and the very earth was cursed for his sake. Now man has a difficult task as he works to establish dominion. But his calling is not to domination, as ungodly men believe, but to dominion. And we are told by our Lord how to define that, that he who is greatest among you, or Lord of all, is to be the servant of all. A very different concept. Masculine authority is real, but it is an authority of service, of consideration, of thoughtfulness. Today the macho idea is an evil one, and it goes hand in hand with the very degradation of manhood that we see so common in our time. Well, with that introduction, uh, Mark, would you like to say something? Well, so what I was going to say what you touched on already, <clears throat> and that is uh, that work was not part of the curse. Adam was created to work. Yes. And the curse was that the work that man did would not always be productive. There would be now be thorns and thistles. Hmm in the garden. Now but he would eat only by the sweat of his brow. The work would be difficult and not always fully productive. But when Christ restores us to our original calling, that original calling for Adam was to do the work that God had assigned him and to fulfill that calling. And so man has to, to view his primary function in life as doing God's work. And too many Christians, I think, tend to, to, when they talk about the role of the man and the role of the husband, they view it in terms of a family. And the man's work is told to take a back seat to his family life. But man's original calling was to work for God and do God's work. And his family responsibilities are in terms of that work. Now work can be can't work can become a god for some men, mm -hmm. and we can't have a uh, an incorrect perspective on our own importance in our work, and sometimes that can be you know the workaholic can can is a genuine problem and that can be a distortion, but work is our primary function. Let Let me ask you if I uh, don't this really is a question yeah but. I've tried to frame this in my own uh, uh, thinking on the subject in terms of being a steward, that God created us in his image, uh, and as God has responsibility for the world, he has given us moral responsibility for caring for His all of his creation. Um, and you go back into Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, which I call managing for growth 
whatever God has given us or put us in contact with, we are to manage for growth. But my point is, Mark, that that if I look at it from being a steward, which is a caretaker, a manager uh, for God, then that forces me into some sort of balance because I need to take care of my family. I also need to work and do my work. I need to do what I can for God's greater kingdom and creation. And each of us is is uh, gifted much differently in that, in both in different arenas and in terms of scope and depth of gifting. But we all have gifts. But if I what I'm saying is I look at it as a steward and say, okay, my job is to manage my family, my work, my community, um, to the extent that I can, you know, for God for the kingdom. Sometimes I'm going to be cast in a servant role. I mean, very often as a servant. Sometimes I'm going to be a warrior. You know, if I have to either physically or in some other way protect my family or just go to, uh, you know, what would a warrior role be? Uh, you know, uh, protecting the community against evil, pornography or crime or drugs, getting involved in the political process today would be a warrior. But anyway, what I... I tend to look at it as our job is to be a steward um, of everything and um, uh, we need to learn how to balance that. But, of course, if we are to be a steward, which I'd like to ask you what you all think, then there's still a balancing problem because it is difficult, you know, to balance. But does that does that framework work, Rush, yes. the, the steward? Yes. For we, we are stewards be? in everything. We are commissioned by God. And the problem with uh, men today is they're ready to claim authority, but they don't want to acknowledge their stewardship under God and that they are to be servants under God, ministering. Yeah, they just want to be the boss. And exactly. Tell a little woman he what shall to be do. his gods, and, and man tends to want to make his own path and do his own will and to be as gods in every area of his life, and that was the original sin. So what you're saying is that, that rather than playing God over our wives, playing God over our children, uh, we must be God's stewards. Uh, right. One amusing sidelight on that of masculine idiocy, it's not as commonly used as it was when I was younger, references to the wife as the little woman. And it used to baffle me that men whose wives were well, dangerously close to 200 pounds would still <coughs> speak of the little woman. It was kind of patronizing and stupid. Well, you know, it, it seems as if secular man and Christian man have each kind of claimed out, claimed um, different ends of the poles and, and polarize. In other words, men that aren't Christians tend to be pretty much often the macho man, you know. Yeah. The woman's going to do what I say or I'm going to punch her lights out. And Christian man tends to, um, you know, be at the other end of that extreme. Oh, you know, I've got to be meek and mild and gentle. And, and he becomes more feminine, you know, in some ways uh, than, uh, than the woman. Uh, so it's either I'm a, e, there's two extremes either I'm macho man mm. or I'm Mr. Rogers 
Uh, <laughs> and there seems to be no happy medium, which is, of course, what I think the biblical model is, is to be, you know, that, that steward, which, as Christ, who's gentle, but, you know, can also get in somebody's face. We have to accept the rank that God has given men. We don't deserve the rank that he's given us, but we have to accept it and we have to exercise it. And what I'm interested in is how many of us has married as pagans and have put up with feminism in our home and then have become Christians and realized that you can't put up with that. And one of the very dangerous things, I think one of the most deadliest things, that enemies that we face is Christian feminism. Uh, yes. Women who call themselves Christians that are feminists at heart mm-hmm. and use the church to geld their men and pastors who play, play along with that game. I, I had an essay in a book which was reprinted this year Towards a Christian Marriage, edited mm-hmm. by Elizabeth Fellerson. And it first came out, I believe, in 78. And I was amazed at the number of uh, women from Reformed churches who took violent exception to certain things in that book and were militant feminists so that it is not the modernist churches with uh, feminist pastors but some of the orthodox ones that are seeing sub-rows of feminism. I don't think they would have expressed themselves that way to their pastors in their churches. I knew in one or two cases that the pastors would have been horrified to know that a prominent woman in their church felt as she did. But they definitely had imbibed of the contemporary feminist doctrines. Which is what, Rush? Could you uh, capsulize for us what that is, the feminist doctrine? What is that all about? The feminist doctrine is a part of the equalitarian temper of the modern era. It insists that... uh, Male and female are equal in every respect. Well, uh, the book by Stephen Goldberg, Why Men Rule, which is a reprint but also an expansion of uh, his book of the mid-70s, The Inevitability of Patriarchy. It's quite an important work. He deals with the subject from the standpoint of a physical anthropologist. And uh, he finds that, uh, contrary to the modern attitude, there are differences between male and female. That uh, women, by and large, equal or excel men in every area that... uh, standardized testing covers except two. The tests, by the way, as we get them, are doctored so that sexual and racial differences will not be detectable. But uh, men excel only in two areas. Uh, We would call one uh, dominion. 
he gives it other terms such as status. Men are able better to exercise dominion. The other area where men excel is in abstract reasoning. When it comes to practical reason, women run circles around men. Men are not practical the way women are. In every other area of testing, women either equal or surpass men. Only in those two areas, dominion and abstract thinking, do men excel. Well, equality is the name of the game in the modern world. And equality is a myth because the term comes, the word is used in the Bible, in the English you find equal about four or five times cited, but it has a different meaning in the Bible. Uh, our modern term, equality and equal, comes from mathematics. Two plus two equals four. On both sides of the equation, you have an abstraction. In mathematics, you're always dealing with things that are abstractions. But you cannot say two Englishmen equal two Germans or two Africans. They may be criminals or they may be men of science or pastors. It's impossible to apply the term equality on the human scene. You can speak religiously of gifts. You have certain gifts, Colonel, which I don't have. John has gifts I don't have. Mark has gifts I don't have. Each of us have gifts that mark us. And they are termed gifts scripturally because they are from God. And we are not to uh, glory in them. Paul says, What hast thou that, that thou hast not received? Having received it from God, why then dost thou glory in it? So we have to take ourselves as a gift. And the other person has been given a gift in God's wisdom differing from ours. And therefore, we don't use the term equality or inequality. Both are inappropriate. They're mathematical terms. Well, let, yeah, well, let's not be abstract. Let's talk about the created order. Mm -hmm. It's God, it's Christ, it's yeah. man, it's woman. Yes. A man was created in the image of God. A woman was created how? In the, the image of man. Exactly. The reflected image of God. Right. Now, God didn't make me to be a Michael Jordan. I would love to be Michael Jordan. But I have to live within the confines... I prefer of, you to Michael Jordan. That, ...that God made me. Well, as an athlete, I'd love to be Michael Jordan. Uh -huh. um, I think we get confused... Uh, and, and, your, and Dorothy has helped me with this, is that why argue about that? Mm -hmm. That's what the case is. Yes. And if you're a man, you have authority. Yes. If you're a woman, you have to live under a man's authority. And if you refuse to exercise your authority or surrender it, surrender it, you are sinning. I exactly. 
And, and I would love to have someone who has the burden of the authority. Uh, I would, um, in a lot of marriages today, you have a lot of rebellion by women. Mm -hmm. Because, well, I'm not going to serve under your authority. But what they don't understand is that there's safety there. Mm -hmm. Because the man is responsible through his calling to serve God. The woman's calling is to serve the man. And, if, and the woman's calling is to be obedient. Mm -hmm. Even if she doesn't seem to think that that's the right thing to do. Yes. But what's not understood is, is that the man is responsible for it. Yes. If he makes the wrong decision, it's his neck that's on the line. Exactly. And that is where you get the safety and the comfort and the security. But we don't understand that today in a, in a modern culture. Well, let me jump in there, John. Isn't, and let me provoke this, don't you think, I shouldn't say that, I think, I, I'm suspecting that a big part of the problem here, uh, that, that while I agree with what we've just said is, is, the, is, is the biblical truth, but what you just said is men need to take the responsibility. I think a lot of Christian men I've seen, number one, they don't want the responsibility. They like not having the yes. responsibility. They have ceded the responsibility to their wife on one hand. On the other hand, and let's get this conversation up. I'd like to hit this one on the head. Uh, and nobody ever want to listen to me again, and that's fine. I can go back and, and uh, let my wife run my life. <laughs> but um, the, the, the point is... Uh, uh, she'd do a better job at some turns than I. Anyway, haven't so many men that we see, at least that I see, impeached themselves as a leader? If I was their wife, I wouldn't want to follow them either because they have proven themselves to be total numbskulls and nitwits. Yes. They've screwed up the family finances time and time and time again, not through uh, some spectacular stroke of bad luck, but just through plain irresponsibility or immaturity. Uh, and they have proven themselves uh, for years uh, not to be good stewards, not to, not to have common sense, uh, not to have, uh, you know, basic planning skills or, 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 you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden they hear a tape by us saying, hey, man's in charge. They go home and, uh, quote, unquote, tell the little woman that after 20 years of ceding responsibility to her or 20 years of being a major screw-up that she's supposed to lay all down and follow them yeah. uh, under, under heavy enemy fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, well, if I was that woman, I, you know, I, as Arnold Schwarzenegger, as Arnold Schwarzenegger said to Sharon Stone, as he pointed a gun at her, consider this a divorce. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, what do we, what do we do with the fact that Christian men, while, while, you know, have 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 made such a mess of it that that a woman. Uh, would would rightfully fear putting yourself under us. What do we do That's with that? That's right. Well, here's what we do. First of all, we take responsibility for the authority God's given us. And we count upon other men whom we respect to teach us what the heck we're supposed to do. Which means we have to care enough to ask. Right. So if we take the leadership of an R.J. Rush Dooney, he tells us, number one, it's your calling, pal. You know, don't don't get into this stuff that you're supposed to with this family routine. This this focus on the family. The focus is not on the family. The focus is on serving God. Number one, a man who knows how to exercise authority knows how to listen. Hmm. He will listen to men under him in whatever work he is doing, and to his wife. 
because he's not afraid of his authority. He knows he's in charge. And he's not surrendering his authority when he says to a subordinate in the uh, work he's involved in or to his wife, what's your thought about this? And that's what uh, is lacking in a great many instances. It doesn't mean they are going to ask for orders from their wife, but they're asking for counsel, and they should. Yeah. And the, the man who doesn't ask for counsel from his wife or ignores that counsel is also the man who hasn't asked for counsel from other men, which is why he's made so many mistakes in yes. his business or his marriages or whatever, because he just hasn't gone after wisdom, period. And then when we flip the tape over, I just spent two hours listening to tapes of a seminar with pastors that you gave, which I think is critical towards understanding the connectedness that men need to have that fellowship and that discipleship that, that Christian men need to have to be able to lead their wife. Uh, before we flip the tape over, I'd like to tell you that, uh, something I've heard often, but the classic example of it was from a woman married and divorced six times and there wasn't a nickel's worth of difference between the men she chose and she kept saying, I wonder why I'm so unlucky <laughs> in love, as though it were all luck, not something wrong with her in picking that type of man. In between, uh, while the tape was being turned over, Dorothy reminded me of something that Ari McMasters said, and she said he is a very wise man. He observed that his wife is a remarkable judge of character, and he would never go against her judgment of any man. So uh, that's the kind of uh, mutual uh, understanding and co-working that is important in marriage. Uh, the war of the sexes is a totally modern idea and the idea of fallen man. It's not the war of the sexes. It's the cooperation of the sexes that godly marriage is made of. And Rush, that, that, excellent. Am I interrupting prematurely? Um, that cooperation is based on, I think Dorothy was quoting Ari as saying that his wife, and of course Miriam and I know uh, uh, both of them, his wife and he agree on the work to be done in the kingdom. They have mm -hmm. that same world view. And, and um, but what, what I wanted to say is that I think a lot, getting, again, back to the man and his lack of taking responsibility as a steward for God's world is that most Christian men I know don't have the slightest idea what their mission on planet Earth is as a man. I didn't for 40 years as a man, uh, 20 of an evangelical church. So if I don't have an idea what my mission is, 
how can I integrate my wife in as a uh, as a partner in helping to achieve it? If I'm president of this little enterprise, how can she be executive vice president? What happens is is it seems to me is that because I have no understanding of my role, I can't call her uh, up or ask her assistance in accomplishing anything, and so therefore she just will naturally get off into a drift on her own or maybe mm-hmm. take responsibility for my children or something. But first, I've got to understand my identity, and this is what modern man has failed to do. The great thing with modern man, as we all know, is the so-called crisis of identity and how modern man is now identified by sociologists is he is made to consume. We are producers and we produce so we can consume. We go to work so that we can buy. And the evangelical man is not much different. He simply produces and consumes so he can wait to go to heaven. Uh, he still has, no, from what I can see, the evangelical man, which I spent 20 years um, as one, uh, hasn't, has no better idea what he's here to do uh, more, more than the secular man. Other than, as John Upton stated, we're told to, quote, focus on the family. Right. One of the things, this goes back a few years, that uh, endeared your wife, Colonel, to me and to Dorothy, was when Miriam remarked that she had seen so many people whom she knew and loved who'd messed up their lives with bad marriages that she waited 17 years until she could find a man who defined his life in terms of the faith. Hmm. And that was you. So when I heard her say that, I knew I thought the world of you both. Well, I'm glad you reminded me on this last day of the year. Now I'll know what my New Year's resolution is, Rush, to recommit myself to that. To that uh, well, she'll help you. Well, clearly we all fail to do the job that we know we, we should do or that our wives would, would want us to do as part of that um, leadership and stewardship role. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what I'd like to ask you, Rush, is what has happened here um, where men, where we should have been able to go, particularly Christian men, uh, where we should have been able to go to get the mentoring. John Upton was just saying, well, you know, to learn to be responsible, to learn to, to be the leader of our home and our wife, uh, to learn that. Where do you go? And John was saying, well, we, we go to other men. But ideally, we should have been able to go to the church. It seems yes. to me the church should have been teaching us this is what it means to be a steward under God. And here's, it's not focus on the family, it's focus on God's creation. And uh, your family is a big part of that. But it doesn't end there. But we've gotten no, it seems to be no guidance from the church. Mm-hmm. If anything, the church has become part of the problem by, by, uh, uh, simply, by encouraging our emasculation. We're told that we're aliens on the planet. I say it's the spiritual equivalent of no trace camping. We're, we're taught not to leave a trace of ourselves on the planet. We're just a passing through, waiting for heaven. Uh, we're, we're, our, 
our image of the Christian man is not a mighty steward. Our image that is held up to us, when we think of being conformed to Jesus, for 20 years my training was being conformed to Jesus is not being Joshua, not being Moses, not being a mighty man of God. It's to be Mr. Rogers. I speak sweetly, I'm gentle, I always turn the other face when I get kicked in the groin, slapped, or any other, uh, you know, offense, uh, and I, I'm to be a wimp. This mm-hmm. is my image. So, where has the church gone in terms of training us to be men, Rush? Yes. First of all, you have to realize that in the pagan world, Greco-Roman world, the woman was nothing until she rebelled and you had total feminism in the and total immoralism in the Roman world. But uh, the women and the children were slaves to the man. Christianity altered that. Remember, in the book of Proverbs, the wife, when her husband sits in the gates, which meant he was either a judge or a member of the town council, because that's where they met, and to sit at the gate was to be a ruler. Uh she managed the affairs. She conducted trade with uh, foreign countries. She guided all the activities of the business and of the farm and so on. And when you look at uh, the activities of Christian women in the Middle Ages and at the time of the Reformation, you find a great deal of versatility and talent exercised and yet at the same time a recognition of the headship of the man well the change in the status of the woman which has affected church life to this day began with the enlightenment and the enlightenment worshipped reason reason was their god and men were regarded as the creatures who manifested reason. Remember what Stephen Goldberg has said in recent years, that men represent a great, of a great ability in abstract thinking, women in practical thinking. And the Enlightenment thinkers did not value practical reason because they were uh, either heavily subsidized or rich Lords or heirs of the lords and so on. So to them it didn't mean much practical thinking. And they regarded women as rather stupid. And a consequence of that was the church became a place for women and children because men as reason were above faith. But women, since they were not uh, thinkers, would want uh, faith and superstition and that sort of nonsense. It was for women and children. And so the church, from becoming a, being a masculine province, became the area of women. This reached its height in the last century when... Uh, Preachers were regarded as really feminine uh, because they dealt mostly with women. 
And there was a saying that uh, about the three sexes, men, women, and preachers. <laughs> so we still have that all around us. And a, a pastor who too clearly and obviously exercises masculine authority is not liked. And by masculine authority, I don't mean pushing people around, but by being decisive, clear-cut, in a gracious, godly way. So we have inherited uh, uh, an Enlightenment view, which we tend to call Victorian, but goes right. back to the Enlightenment philosophers, who were very often men who never went near women. The number of Enlightenment figures who never married is startling. And uh, their uh, attitude towards women, while formally correct, was philosophically very bad. Uh, also, to answer your question, we had dinner the other night with one of the 435 congressmen in our country, and this is, was a, a Christian man and a, and a good man. And when when I asked him about self-government, he had no idea what I was talking about. He said, well, are you talking about limited government? And I said, no, I'm talking about self-government. Do you understand the concept? He hadn't even heard of that. And, and you know, Rush then, maybe you could explain it again, but Rush explained it to him, and the man could not understand. He, there's no concept of it at all. Yes. From an historic, biblical, and theological position, the first area of gov government is the self-government of the Christian man. That's your basic government. The basic governmental institution is, second, the family which is the most powerful government in the life of man. Then third, the church is a government. Then fourth, the school is a government. Fifth, your job, your vocation governs you. It tells you when you're going to go to bed in order to get up in time to go to work and so on. Then all the private associations in society, connections and so on, our government. And then seventh, the state, which our forefathers never called government, but only civil government. To use the term government as we do now, meaning the state, is implicitly totalitarian. We're reducing government to the state when the heart of government is in the first two the self-government of the Christian man and in the family. Um, Rush, it, it occurs to me that a major problem 
within evangelical circles and 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 John what you said here's a congressman that doesn't even understand some of the basic concepts and he is a good christian but really isn't the problem that the evangelical church because it denies the dominion mandate yes. if there is no dominion mandate why should we be stewards of god's creation it's all going to go to hell it's all destined for destruction yes. uh, we're out of here in a few years jesus is coming back uh our only job should be saving souls. Uh, so instead of becoming stewards, we become revivalists. Yes. And the other thing I'd like to suggest is that something else has filled that void. There's now a void with no dominion mandate. We really have no stewardship mandate. What I say has filled that void is that we are now to be conformed to Christ's image from a pietistic, perfectionistic yes. mode, which is now dominating evangelicalism. And what that means is when we're conformed to image to Christ, it's no longer as warrior king, as conqueror, as dominion, uh, or even as servant steward. It's now, I just, I just completed a study on perfectionism, uh, actually, uh, Rush, you may have read the book, uh, of course, you've read a thousand times more than I have, but Douglas Frank in uh, Less Than Conquerors, he's a professor uh, mm -hmm. uh, at Trinity, had a fascinating section on pietistic perfectionism, and what he came down to is, under this theory that we can be perfect, uh, and we are to live above sin, and and as Christians we're just always, uh, you know, striving to be more and more perfect, as opposed to actually helping people and and being a, and doing good works and so forth. That the uh, what do I want to call it the trademark, the earmark, uh, the the measurement of whether or not we're attaining this Christ likeness was not what we did with our lives, but how we spoke. In other words, did we speak lovingly, meekly, mm. sweetly at all times? Essentially saying, were we feminized? You know, if we, if we were masculine and assertive and got angry and mad and hated evil and so forth, this couldn't be reflective of Christ, who we know was always very gentle when he dealt with the Pharisees. Um, so what I'm suggesting is the evangelical church has trashed the dominion mandate, told us that we don't need to be stewards, and in place of that has suggested some form of, of uh, feminized uh, model of Christ for us to emulate. And that's why we have no idea as men, or at least we had no idea, I had no idea, uh, what it's all about. Well, tell us what you're doing to correct it, Colonel, because you're talking, you just did a conference and you talked about classical Christianity and yes. you're getting men together. I mean, I think that's a good antidote you're, to what we're talking about. You're holding conferences for men to teach them to be men. Yes, Dr. Monty Wilson from Florida um, and myself, some others, Joseph McAuliffe, Bill Mickler, a number of us, um, all in our 40s, 
dealing with these issues ourselves, have now developed a men's workshop. Uh, we've run about 400 men through it. It uh, lasts, um, starts on a Friday night, goes Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. Um, just dealing with these issues, letting men talk, doing the basic uh, teaching. Uh, this last November is what John Upton's referring to. Uh, we brought together 40 men, about half of them pastors and half of them businessmen, uh, just to talk about how can we meet more often uh, to network and to mentor each other. What John Upton mentioned earlier, unfortunately, we don't, there are not very many Dr. Rush Doonies around. There are not very many older men to give us wisdom. Uh, and we really have to start, those of us who are in our 40s, we, we have to try to mentor each other. Uh, to the extent that we that we can, uh, we don't have those senior men uh, in in our in our local churches or our neighborhoods. Uh, so we are uh, myself and a few others are um, um, beginning to work on this issue, uh, just amongst leaders, and then also um, putting together a, a men's workshop. So I think at the end of the tape, we'll probably let you know how to how to write us if you're interested in exploring this issue uh, more. Mm -hmm. It's important to stick together because, first of all, we're, we're all oddballs. We don't believe what most of the so-called Christian men believe. We certainly don't believe what, what women believe. And we have no resources to go to, to, to talk, and that's important. The elders at the gate, the whole concept, I'm sure that the elders at the gate rush were talking about the problems in the community. Yes. They were helping each other. They were teaching younger men uh, who were coming up through the ranks what to do. And, and uh, you know, we've lost that. The, the, I read an interesting book called the, the New Individualist, and it talked about the generation after the organization man, which is our generation, Mark, Mark's generation, anybody born, the baby boomers, anybody born after 1946. And they, we are characterized as self-expressionists. All we want to do is express ourselves. Um, what's interesting is that the generation after us, the Generation Xers, are trying to connect themselves. They want to be connected, huh. and um, which is not a bad thing. Hopefully, we'll be in a position to provide the leadership to them to connect to you know to connect them to something because what they've seen they've seen nothing but divorce failure social systems deteriorating and their most important thing are friends these these young these, these younger people they cling to the, they they cling to friendships so we have self expressed ourselves to death that's what this eschatology is all about. It's about self-expression. It's about being a part of the last generation of Earth. That we're the most important, and that's nothing but self-expression. So hopefully, we're going to snap out of that and start teaching. First of all, learning ourselves what our calling is. Secondly, exercising our calling, and thirdly, teaching young men to do the same. And that's the way out of it. And you're a part of the solution there. And we've got to network and come together and meet together. And that's, that's what you're referring to. We did in November mm -hmm. is beginning. And we're going to be doing this more often if people are interested in beginning to bring men in particular, but everybody, just leaders together to talk like this. Let me just throw out something that came to mind. It 
It's uh, a recollection from my days on the Indian Reservation. There was this one old Indian, uh, really an old-timer, who lived way, way out. And uh, he rarely said anything. And I asked some of the old men in the church about him, and they laughed. And one of them said, I rode cattle on a roundup with him for two, three days once. And the only thing he ever said was when uh, my back was turned to him and he had a cup of uh, coffee in his hand and he reached out towards me and said, Coffee? And he said that was all he had to say. And his attitude was he, when he had something to say, he would say it. And he regarded... Uh, most white men as like old women. They talk all the time. And he said, most Indians are getting to be like white men, old women. Uh, I sometimes think about that. Especially, especially after Colonel talks, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very much a part of the modern world and I enjoy talking and it is a form of communion I value. But in a sense, talk has become very cheap, and uh, men shoot off their mouths too much. And the earlier picture of men as strong, silent types is uh, yeah, very remote going? in our day. I hope my wife is listening to this, so when she wants me to talk at the end of that day, you know, I'll say, no, I'm returning that strong, silent type mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, mode. But, uh, you know, what was speaking, what, what comes to my mind, you know, speaking kind of the old timers, uh, this is a real old time, but I was amazed, Rush, to find what I consider to be the best well-balanced description of a man in the book of Job of all places, and I just urge our listeners to look up Job 29. It's about halfway through that chapter. Uh, but Job 29, Job is describing himself, who he is. And there's this beautiful section where he's talking about, you know, he sits at the city gates, he's one of the leaders, but he's the eyes to the blind. Uh, he, you know, the, 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 he's the hero to the widows. Uh, he feeds the poor. And it's all this imagery that he is meeting the needs of the needy. And then it comes to my favorite part, and he breaks the fangs of the wicked yes. about to devour the helpless. So here's a man straight out of Isaiah 58, um, you know, a man who is helping the needy, protecting the innocent, fighting evil. This is God's man. You can see in chapter 29 of Job, he's servant, he's a steward, and this guy is definitely a warrior. This is no Mr. Rogers Christian. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's Old Testament, and as dispensationalists, yeah, we, right. we disregard that. I mean, this is the <laughs> 90s, you know. We, we are living in the 90s. Be realistic. Sure, right? let's just get a church growth seminar yeah. and quit the, what do we need this conversation for? you haven't for. hugged me today. Yeah, well, I'm not going to either. What sort of deodorant have you been using? <laughs> you know, a related topic to this, we've been talking about man and his covenantal responsibilities under God, and marriage is 
the marriage covenant is a related covenant. It's another covenant that we place ourselves un- under God, husband and wife covenant under God. Um, and that is the whole issue uh, of dating. And the, the whole issue of finding a life mate has become so romanticized. Too many young Christian kids, and uh, even kids who grow up in Christian schools, still have the idea that you find a good life mate by finding a good date. And a good date can often be a lousy spouse. Because on a date we're looking for entertainment, we're looking for flattery. We're looking someone who, who feed, feeds our self-esteem. And an extreme form of that is um, a young man who will find himself entrapped by a, a girl who will latch on to him. And they may be incompatible, but this girl latches on to this, this young man and won't let go until this boy finds himself permanently attached to this girl who's, who's, who's no good for him or his covenant responsibilities under God, and it leads him astray. And this whole idea of the romantic view of dating and relationships is, is very destructive of, 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 uh, uh, of a man's calling. How, how are you That's going excellent. to help excellent. Isaac through that? Well, we have to have, um, we have to help our kids understand that their whole life is one of service to God and they have to focus on everything in their life is measured in terms of are you serving God and are you doing um, this to further your your service to God mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if their their marriage is not a means of serving God then it's a, then it's holding the So you're going to tell your son that he needs to find a woman that will help him in God's service that's right. going to be the number one right. criteria and if she happens to be attractive and funny and and all those other things great but mm-hmm. the first priority is to have a help me and as far as you can arrange the marriage and a good diary I might add that yes. was my yes. mistake <laughs> um, <but laughs> what do you mean you were supposed to put up the dowry was that how it worked yeah you see you put up the dowry and then when you screw up if you screw up she has protection. Win. Well, you know what, what? What Mark said really is not. As a young man, uh, that would, as a teenager, that would have saved me that realization, um, and hopefully, I can save my son that frustration. But and that gets back to if we don't know what our job is, if we don't understand, you know, stewardship mandate mm-hmm. and dominion, then why should we uh, mm-hmm. seek out a wife to help us uh, in that? Yes, God did not give Eve to Adam until he had found himself in terms of his calling. Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening, and thank you for helping us with this subject, Colonel. We're very grateful to you. You're very welcome here as often as you want to come.